As we uh, begin this morning, just have a, a couple of announcements uh, for you all. Uh, first is our Seder meal, which is Friday night, and uh, this is really in place of, or is really our um, our Good Friday service. Uh, typically, we do have a service on Good Friday, uh, just kind of thinking about the cross. And um, but this uh, the the Seder meal is really a perfect uh, service for that, as it is uh, sort of a, a reenactment of of the Last Supper. It is the, the Passover meal. And uh, if you have signed up or whatever, if you're planning to come and you have emailed me and my administration has been good, then you have uh, received an email yesterday of what you need to bring. Uh, if you thought you signed up but didn't receive an email, um, something messed up, okay? I don't, me, you, whatever. Somewhere that communication didn't quite happen. And um, if you're going to come, just email me. There's still room. There's still time. We just need to know how much to set up because it's different than a, a potluck. It will be a potluck. It will be a meal, but there'll be some other things taking place as well. But we just need to know how many are there because there's some special setup with that. And so if you want, you can take out your phone right now and do that if you want. But um, second announcement uh, is about what I mentioned last week. Uh, just uh, I mentioned last week about a concern uh, about the baptismal position of Brian Mulder. Um, and I just say he's been fully supportive of our baptismal position as a church. Jody was baptized here, he's planning if and when his kids come to faith to see them baptized. But he himself has only been baptized as an infant. And so we are going to change that. He's going to be baptized as a believer here in the next couple of weeks. Um, and so we're going to have a baptismal service. So if some of you haven't been baptized as a believer, uh, that opportunity is going to come. We're going to address that issue on April 8th. Um, talk about baptism. Ryan will just share his um, his journey, his stories, walk through for for that whole process as well. So that's that's taking place. Uh, you can just pray for that whole process. So let's let's pray before we open the word. Father, I, I do pray, God, in your grace right now, that Romans ten verses eleven through fifteen would come alive to us. God, that it would be something to to stir our hearts with a fresh vigor and passion, God, to reach out to those who don't know Jesus. Father, help us to see that the sovereignty of God does not in any way curtail um, God being passionate about seeing others come to Christ. God, but the implications of your gospel, that it's for all who believe, have implications to us as well, that, that we need to go. And so God would pray that you would give us feet that are, are beautiful, that go and, and reach out to others. So, God, be gracious to us. Help us in this moment. God, help us as we even think about celebrating the Lord's Supper. God, cause us to reflect upon the cross of Christ uh, again, freshly, as we celebrate one last time before Easter morning. God, be with us. Show us Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to tell you about this guy. Who knows who this guy is? <laughs> that guy. There we go. That guy. You children with your children's notes know all about it, right? That's William Carey is, is who that is. Uh, when did he live? How's that? Any guesses? What century? 18th century. Yeah, 1700s. Good. Late 18th century. He was born in, in 1761 into a humble home in a, in a village of Pollersbury in the uh, East Midlands of England. At age 14, he apprenticed to uh, a shoemaker 
And while he apprenticed, there was a friend of his who was a fellow worker, a guy named John War, had a, a religious influence upon his life. And uh, he came to see Jesus and the gospel and then began attending a congregational church. In his 20s, he became involved with an association of particular Baptists. By the age of 25, he was pastoring a small Baptist church about 10 miles south of his hometown. And when the church couldn't fully support him, he went bivocational and actually went back to his trade of making shoes, which he, he did for four years. But during these days, in his 20s, 25, late, late 20s, God was stirring in his heart greatly. Uh, several books influenced him. Uh, the first was uh, David Brainerd's Life and Account of David Brainerd. Um, I remember years past, a bunch of us men read through this book. It's an amazing book of a devout man totally giving himself to, um, to the, bringing the gospel of the American Indians. And anyone who reads this book would be an, impacted by Brainerd's piety. He died at age 29, probably from tuberculosis I, I, is what I think. Second impact upon Gary's life were the journals of James Cook. It's interesting, a secular book where James Cook told all about his uh, travels to the, the South Seas, the South Pacific Seas. And uh, Carey was moved particularly by, by the number of pagan worlds that had never been reached with the gospel. And his third book that was influenced him was a, a book written by his friend Andrew Fuller, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptance. That was published in 1781. And, and this book basically presents a biblical case that all sinners need to believe in Christ for salvation. So, so Carey put all these books in his mind. From Fuller's book, he saw the need for everyone who, who believes, uh, saw the need for all to believe in Jesus. In, in, in Captain Cook's journals, he saw all these people perishing without the gospel. And in Brainerd's life, he saw the real-life example of one giving totally of himself to reach out to those who are apart from Christ. And, and pulling them all together, he began to form a conviction in his heart for the need for missionary work. And so while he was working there as a, as a shoemaker, uh, he, um, he, he drew up a crude map of the world. And you know how sometimes we place pins on maps? Well, he did that. And, and he labeled the places where the gospel had not yet been preached. And he prayed, Luke 10, verse, four, verse 2, Lord, raise up harbors, har laborers into your harvest. And, and, and he began to reason that if it's the duty of all men to believe the gospel, then it must be the duty of all who receive the gospel to make work and making it known. And as he began talking about this with other people, people called him utopian and idealistic, and they called him a, a fanatic. Well, that was private, and it came public in, 18, in 1787 when Carey uh, attended a, uh, a minister's meeting. And, and at this meeting, I'm not sure of the format, but he raised the question whether it was indeed the duty of all Christians to spread the gospel throughout the world. And the presiding minister, John Ryland, reported to have responded to Carey's question this way. If he didn't say these exact words, he said something like this. He said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it with or without your aid or mine. And my suspicion is that Carey sat down that day. Um, but he didn't sit down for long because he continued thinking about those things, praying about those things, and... Uh, a, year, a few years later, he was employed full-time as a pastor, which gave him time to, to think and, and to write. And, and three great events took place in his life. Uh, first of all, he, he published this book entitled An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Just think about it. He's got to argue that Christians have to go out and uh, preach the gospel. Such was the, the heavy um, 
um, the heavy, I forget to call it, ultra-Calvinism of the day that just said God was sovereign and we don't do anything. And Carey and, and argued that the commands of Jesus to his disciples was to go to all the world and preach the gospel. And it applied not only to the disciples, but it also applied to us that we need to go out to all the world to preach the gospel. We have a responsibility to go. Here's what he wrote. He wrote, we must not be contented with praying without exerting ourselves in the use of means for the obtaining of these things we pray for, right? If you pray, you must also work to obtain those prayer requests. Uh, I remember a, an illustration that Randy Alcorn shared of someone who was praying just about uh, some lustful sin that he had. And he said, I'm praying about it, I pray, I just can't stop. And, and, and so, so um, Randy Alcorn kind of had this book right on the edge of his his uh, his desk and he said oh i pray that this doesn't fall i pray this doesn't fall i pray this doesn't fall i pray and he let his book fall over he says isn't that crazy why am i praying for something i'm doing i need, I need to make efforts to say i'm praying this bible won't fall and take the bible and put it on his desk and that's what carrie was arguing here in this book is that we need not just merely to pray but then we ought to make efforts to see our prayers happened Another big event in his life was a ministerial meeting when he preached a sermon from Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. And those great phrases came about, expect great things from God. You know what the next word is? Attempt great things for God. Don't switch those. Don't say attempt great things for God, expect great things. No, it's, it's God is sovereign. You expect great things. And then you seek to attempt those great things. Speaking of the missionary motto of, of many and a third event that took place in 1792 was the organization of the Baptist Missionary Society where Carey offered himself as the first missionary candidate. And that next year, March of 1793, Carey was sent as a missionary off to India by the Baptist Missionary Society. And for the next 40 years, he labored to bring the gospel to India, never returning home again. And God used him mightily as he expected great things from God and attempted great things for God. Now, one of the driving texts behind Carrie's thought here, I'm not sure if you can see it, but this is the title, this is the title page of his inquiry. And I've just blown it up there for you. It's kind of written in uh, older English. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For all, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is our text today. It's really what, what drove him. Is that everyone who believes will be saved. But we need to go. So if you haven't opened your Bible already, I invite you to take it and open to Romans chapter 10. My message this morning is entitled Good News for All. It's on page 946 of your pew Bible. We're just going to sit right here. I want to read the text for us. Romans 10, verses 11 through 15. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The text really breaks in half. The first half says the same thing in verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 13. It says that all who believe will be saved. The gospel's for all. And the second half addresses the need then for people to hear the gospel and need for us to go out and spread the word. 
In other words, Paul is telling us not to sit down. And he's telling us not just to pray to God to convert the heathen without us doing anything about it. He's telling us to, to because everyone who believes in the name of the Lord will be saved, we need to go out and preach so that people can and will be saved. God uses means to bring people to himself. But the conviction to go rests firmly on the conviction that the gospel is for all. It's my first point here. The gospel's for all. Look, look how it said the same thing three times. Verse 11, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, this isn't the first time that we've heard these words. Paul quoted it in chapter 9 and verse 33. Just, just look over there. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's essentially the same thing in verse 11. Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This quote comes from Isaiah chapter 28 and, and verse 16, where the, the Lord promises deliverance. From the sin of the people, right? They, they, they'd gotten involved and, and, and engaged in sin and just it was awful. But God says this deliverer is going to come and you believe in him, you will not be put to shame. He will be a, 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 a choice and precious stone. And, and though he is choice and precious, many will stumble over him. But the one who believes won't ever stumble. Instead, God will help him. He will not be put to shame. Now, just pastoral side note here, think about this and reflecting about this, but why did Paul quote this verse twice, just so quickly? Like at the end of chapter 9 and here just, whatever, 12 verses later in, in verse 11. Why did he quote them twice? I, you know what, this is, this is um, conjecture, but I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, Paul knew verse in the Old Testament like we know verse in the New Testament, right? When something comes upon us, there, there are verses, right, that we hold on to. Maybe it's Romans 8.28. I know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God or call according to His purpose. Or maybe it's Romans 1.16, right? I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It kind of motivates us and helps us. Or sometimes in our, our weakness, we need to know that we need to cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. But the same way we know the New Testament, Paul knew the Old Testament. And I would suspect that these sorts of words to him became very helpful to his soul. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Think about his life. Kicked out of town for preaching the gospel often. Sydney, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica, Berea. And usually the religious Jews kicked him out who called his teaching heretical. He was called a plague. He was called a ringleader. He was called one who stirs up riots. He's told his learning drove him mad and attempts were made on his life. He was stoned and left for dead. He was whipped and beaten. And maybe in those days, Isaiah 28, verse 16, became um, a comfort to him when he clenched the promise, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Amidst the whole world that's putting him to shame, he's not. Well, it's my, my pastoral side to you, maybe. But, but anyway, right? He, he does... He does know that he can press on because he, he was serving the Lord and he answered to the audience of one. But here in the context of our verse, Paul didn't quote the verse how it ends. That may have been uh, in chapter 9, but he quotes this verse because of how it begins. Not because not being put to shame, but because of this word everyone, how verse 11 begins. The Paul's point here is the universality of the gospel. The, the blessings of the gospel are available to all who believe. So I said this morning, right, the gospel is for all. It's what he says in verse 11. It's what he says in verse 12. It's what he says in verse 13. Look, look at verse 12. He says the same thing. The gospel is for all. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. See, in Paul's day, there were many differences between the Jews and the Greeks. 
entirely different cultures, entirely different languages. I mean, the, the Jews spoke Hebrew and the, the Greeks spoke Greek, right? But Greeks here just really means other pagans. They, they spoke other languages. They, they had different gods. The Jews worshipped the God of the Bible and the, and the Greeks worshipped the pantheon of gods. Kind of whatever god, the, the god du jour. They had a different morality. Right? The Jews lived under strict obedience to the laws. The, the Greeks were a law unto themselves. They just lived according maybe to the law of the land, much like America, whatever, whatever you want. Just had some government protection. They had different customs. The Jews celebrated the feasts and festivals according to the way of their ancestors, one of which the Seder meal, we'll, we'll look at that. And the, the Greeks, though, celebrated the feasts and festivals of their, their pantheon of gods. They had different foods. The Jews ate only what was permitted in the law, but the Gentiles routinely ate anything, often sacrificing their, their food first to the gods before they ate it. The, the Jews and Greeks were different as night and day, but listen, whatever difference was between the two groups, when it came to their need of salvation, they were exactly the same. And there's no difference between the two. Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 3 is the whole thing that we all need Jesus. The Greeks were under sin for rejecting the revelation of God. The Jews were under sin for not living up to the standard of the law. As Paul concluded, what then? Are we Jews better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As is written, none is righteous. No, not one. The only difference between the Jew and the Greek... Culture, outward, there's no difference in their sin, and there's no difference in their need for the gospel, and there's no difference in the availability of salvation. As verse 12 says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. See, the God who saved the Jews is the God who will save the Gentiles if they but believe. The Lord is Lord over all humanity. So we sang. Every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ. Everything is the Lord's. And that means that when he saves, he's the same God that saves the Jews and the Gentiles. He created us all. When Jesus died, he died for both alike. Now to us today, that Gentiles 2,000 years after the fact, when the, the gospel has come to us. I mean, we don't even think in those terms very much. It's easy for us. Well, of course, it's come, it's come to us. It comes to everybody, but not so for the Jews of the first century. For their entire history. I mean, you think about from the time of Abraham on. We're talking 2,000 years. Abraham was 2,000 B.C. From that time on, it was the Jewish people are special. The Jewish people are special. And God did have a special favor upon the Jews. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And, and they would cry out to God, and God would show himself true. And they would follow the other teams, other teams, whatever. The other people would follow their other gods. And, and our God always prevailed. And he was for us. And, and he had his mind and his heart upon us. And to think that, that God is now for all, it's very difficult for the Jews. I mean, a, a good illustration is that Acts 13, when Paul was preaching the gospel at city in Antioch. When he preached in their synagogue, they loved it. And they begged, come back again next week. But when the next Sabbath came, and the whole city was there, and when the Jews began to realize that this gospel isn't just for Jewish people, it's for Gentiles as well. They, they saw the whole city. They were filled with jealousy. Because this is our God. We're not going to share our God. And as they were filled with jealousy, they began contradicting Paul. They began reviling Paul. Such were the deep hostilities that the Jews had towards the Gentiles. And it was difficult for the Jews to accept. 
That for years and years and centuries and centuries, the God of the universe was their God. They were the chosen people. They received the blessings. And now in the gospel, though, it's changed. The riches that came to the Jews now come to believers, to all believers. In fact, that's the point. Look at verse 12 again. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call upon him. And back in chapter 9 and verse 4, Paul spoke about the riches that the, the Jewish people had. He said they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. I mean, these were the riches the Jews had. They were adopted children of God. The Jews had the glory of God, his presence dwelling among them in the tabernacle, in the temple. The Jews had the privilege of this covenant relationship with the Lord that no other nation had. The Jews were recipients of the promise of God. And all these riches are for us, for Gentiles. As we believe in the Lord, we're adopted into his family. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We're in relationship with the Lord. His, his promise of blessing call, comes upon us. And Paul calls these riches. These are the riches that are available to all who call on him. And for proof, he goes to verse 13. Um, yeah, verse 13, it says the same thing. He bestows riches on all who call upon him because, verse 13, 4, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a quote from Joel 2 and verse 32, just speaking about how in the, in the latter times, what God's going to do, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Jew, that's Greek, that is everyone. So you think about, okay, so who is everyone? Well, I've got a little list. It's for the Algerian and the Bulgarian and the Colombian. It's for those from Denmark and Egypt and France and Germany and Hungary, from Iraq and Jamaica and Kenya and Lebanon from Mexico and Nepal and Oman and Pakistan, from Qatar and Romania and Somalia and Taiwan, from Uzbekistan, Venezuela, Yemen and Zimbabwe, all of those people, recipients of the riches, if they but believe in the Lord. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's not just far off countries there. It's America. Every American who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Every Illinoisan who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Every Rockfordian who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Or, or Loves Park or Beloit or Delavan or Davis Junction or wherever you are. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's everyone at your work, at your school, in your neighborhood, where you live. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel is for all. And this is, this is Paul's argument in Romans. I mean, that's how, how he began. That the gospel isn't merely for Jewish people. It's for Jews and Greek alike. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. It, it, it's all. It's not just as Jewish people anymore. This, is, this blessing has exploded beyond us. And this has always been the heart of God. Turn over to Romans 15. Because Paul, Paul proves and shows that this is really nothing new in the plan of God. It's not like the plan of God look, took, a, took a U-turn or took a, a big hard left and said, oh, oh we're going to go for everyone now. This is always the plan of God, that all the nations would worship the Lord. Um, look at verse 8, Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. There it is. Psalm 18 and verse 49. Praising you among the Gentiles, with the Gentiles. This was prophesied before of this overflowing realm of the reach of the worship of God. And again, it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. There's a, there's a call for, na- for pagan people to rejoice with the people of Israel. And again, from Psalm 117, verse 1, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul is arguing in Romans that that the gospel isn't for the Jew only, it's for the Jew and to the Greek, proving it from the Old Testament and demonstrating here, even calling this, this verse from Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's just saying that this gospel is beyond us. It's beyond us Jewish people. You remember, Paul is writing this as a missionary. It's important in Romans to keep in mind. It's a missionary letter. He's, he's going to Rome, seeking financial support for the church there. He wants to continue on to Spain so he can preach the gospel there where people have never heard of the gospel. They need to hear so they can be saved. And so he says, I want, I want to go on. I, I want to go there. As it says in Romans 15 and verse 21, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. See, that's the heart of Paul. To bring the gospel to those who have never heard that they might hear of the riches of God. This is the logical implication of the universality of the gospel. It must be told. People must hear. But for that to happen, people must go. And that is my second point this morning. That the gospel's for all. So spread the word. Look at verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now the logic of these verses are impeccable. If indeed all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and this is true, we've seen that in 11 and 12 and 13, all who call upon the Lord is, will be saved, there's a problem. Because you cannot call upon someone whom you have not believed. See, the, the cry of salvation isn't a cry to outer space. It's not just some ethereal cry that goes out there. It's a cry to the Lord who you know can save you. And to call requires that you believe in Him. But you can't believe in someone you've never heard of. I mean, if you know nothing of the Lord, it's impossible for you to believe in Him. You must know something of the Lord to believe. You need to hear of Him. But you cannot hear unless someone tells you. Now in our internet literature age, is a little bit different now than it was back then. But, but back then it was we need to, to get things out. We, we need to go and tell people. See, God normally doesn't speak from the heavens. God speaks through people. And there needs to be someone to make it known. But you can't be told by someone... Unless someone goes and tells you, thus the need for people to speak, thus the need for preachers to be sent. And according to Paul's whole argument in Romans, I add one more thing. And how can they be sent unless they are funded? 
This is it's a missionary letter. Paul's trying to secure support for the missionary efforts in Spain and beyond. Look at chapter 15 and verse 22. He's talking here. This is the whole reason why he's writing. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I long for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. You know, when Paul says here in verse 22, verse 24, rather, that, that I want to be helped on by you, helped on my journey there by you, what he's, mean, what he's meaning is I need help financially. I need you to help me. Now, he may have had a lot of support and he just needs a little bit more, but he's expecting some financial help. I mean, it's like any missionary. Right? You go to some congregation, you talk about what you're doing, your mission, what you're doing, or you hear something. And, and yes, they, they covet your prayers. Coveting prayers is always what goes away. They, they, co- they want your prayers, right? Pray for us, for sure. But, but they need beyond that because prayers alone don't, don't do a lot. I mean, they, they are. They're help for encouragement and moral support, and, and God certainly does that. But it's the same thing with William Carey. We're just going to pray and not? No, we need to pray and then use the means to see that, that happen. And Paul also needed physical help. He needed funds. He needed supplies. He needed travel, wisdom, and, and help of any way. He needed resources, and he could have taken them any way he, he could get them. But he knows he cannot go and preach the gospel of Spain and beyond unless he has the resources. The whole theme of Romans is that he is eager to preach the gospel. And it's a challenge for us. Are we eager to preach the gospel? Romans 1.15, he's eager to preach the gospel to those of those who are in Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel to Spain and beyond. Let me ask you this, though. Suppose that Paul was unable to secure enough resources to travel to Spain. WW. PD. What would Paul do? He didn't have the resources to go. What would he do? <laughs> He'd make tents, exactly. He would stay and he would like he did in Corinth. Like he was in, in Corinth, he was making tents with Ananias and Sapphira. And in, in Acts 18, verse 11, it says how he was teaching the word of God among them. Making tents by day, teaching by night. That's what he was doing. Uh, maybe he'd spend three years in Rome as he did in Ephesus when he was declaring the whole council of God. But all the while, like William Carey, just burning and wanting to go and wanting to go and wanting to go, but just needing this means to be able to, to launch, to spend a life in India. In his case, Spain, preaching where Christ had not been named. So, application to us this morning is, is not the application of necessarily Paul to say, hey, let's, let's all go. Because if we all picked up to a foreign land and went to preach the gospel, what would happen? We wouldn't have anyone supporting us on the way out because you need to have people at home to support the work. When William Carey left to India, when he went to preach the gospel to many who had never heard before, he said to his friends, I will go down, but you hold the rope. In other words, he pictured himself as, as over this well going into this pit and they're going to hold the rope lest they let go and he go down and crash and fall. They're going to hold the rope so they could pull him back or help him, help him up and down. And his friends were all the more willing to hold the rope and support him in the work. So there's this, this balance. This isn't necessarily just talking about just missionaries go and send, though it, it is talking about that. I mean, so you think about us as, as a church. We hold the rope for... For others who are gone abroad, the gospel is why we support Bob Clinton and First Love International with their work in Nepal and India. 
primarily among mercy ministries, right, helping for orphans and widows to bring attention to the church, and, and the cause of the gospel is greatly enhanced by what he does over there. That's why we support leadership resources, the work of training pastors. They train them all around the world, but we focus our attention on Nepal and India. It's, it's a long story why we do that, but focusing our attention to make a bigger dent in a, um, rather than just a small dent all over the world. That's why we support Farms International, their work among churches in the poorest regions of the world. That's why we support Slavic Gospel Association, where the work among Russian people, because they're a local organization. Let's just help these organizations and these people to support. But our support's not just global. Um, it's even stateside as well. In in the Weekly Word, I've mentioned two weeks in a row about uh, involvement in helping plant churches. We've been, for this past year, setting aside 5% of whatever's come into church planting. we got this pot. It's like $6,000, maybe $8,000, something of that that area. And uh, that's where uh, Crossway Network can can help us. And here's this uh, church here in Parkview Community Church. They launch next Sunday morning. Uh, I talked to James this week. He said they launch at 10 o'clock their time, so at 11 o'clock our time which is like right now, um, I'd love to at that moment, I hope I can pray. I'll pray. Remember that time to pray for them. Just right as they launch their, their, their service. And we have the privilege of, of playing a small part in helping them. Our support's also local to help. <clears throat> By the way, this is their church. And I remember when our church was smaller than this. In fact, I remember our first meeting, we had 14 people. And uh, that's because everyone was excited. The next next meeting, I think we went down maybe ten. I don't know, but but that, I can just I can just I, I'm just right there with them. I just understand how difficult it is to launch in this hard place. And our, our support's also local. We help organizations here in Rockford, just believing that we're we're here. And there's some places doing some good work with the Rockford Rescue Mission, reaching out to those who've fallen on hard times, or safe families, reaching out to children in need, providing them safe families during their times of distress, or, or one body which helps to, to organize and, and support the, the churches together so that we make um, united efforts to help those in need. Um, also, the, the jail ministry John Underhill is involved in, supporting that, just believing that the, the word needs to, to go there. And those, so that just spans the, the spectrum. But, but you would be amiss if you think this text is simply calling us to give money to people to go. Let's, Paul's in need, let, let's give to Paul so, so he can go. No, it's Paul's heart that needs to resonate with ours. He was eager to preach the gospel, and so too must we be eager to spread the word. I just need to make comment here about, isn't it interesting about how Romans 9 matches up with Romans 10? is the greatness of the sovereignty of God is not in any way, at least in Paul's life, and at least in many other evangelists throughout all time of history, it has not been the case that the sovereignty of God logically means, well, God will convert the heathen. What it means is that, no, God will convert. We need to go and bring the message to them so that they will. And by the way, God's sovereignty, when you know that God has got his people in his city someplace, that that's what gives you courage to to stay. In fact, when Paul was was preaching in Corinth and and was dismayed and, and um, <clears throat> was thinking about leaving because they were persecuting him so badly. The Lord said to Paul in a vision, he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You keep going. I'm going to guard you. My sovereignty, I'm going to guard you. No one's going to, no one's going to hurt you because i got my city. i got my people. You, you need to get the gospel to them so they'll come to me. That's the sovereignty of God. 
right there, and that gave Paul security then to stay in Corinth and, and preach the gospel to them. So we ought to also be eager to, to spread the word. And you don't know, and more and more increasingly in America, you don't need to go way overseas to find people who have no clue of the gospel. They are in and around us. They are, are with us. And probably in your social circle, you may be the only one with a gospel witness to people in your social circle. Think about that. The only one who is a gospel witness to people in your social circle. Can, can you think of people like that? Like they, they don't have any other, any other people that they know or they talk to or friends or acquaintances who don't know the gospel. This, this is Paul's heart. He says, I gotta, we got to go. And I just say, just look around you. Look next, next door. And if you've really grasped that the gospel is for all, you'll seek to spread the word in whatever way you can. Now, one example of that, this morning's prayer meeting, we were in Psalm 96. We spent, whatever, 10 minutes there and spent 20 minutes praying. But Psalm 96 is a, is a great model of, of what to do or how to, how to spread that. It says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. So I said, how, how does that work? That was my question, right? So we think about that. How does that work in your life? And it works by wherever you are, just talking and speaking of Jesus and giving hope and giving encouragement, telling of his salvation from day to day. Whoever you run across, just telling of God's salvation, thinking through responses of ways that you can direct people Godward. It means singing the Lord a new song, uh, singing the Lord blessing his name, just when, when you're walking about is to bless his name, and then you're telling of his salvation from day to day. With those, whether it's your, your children, whether it's your spouse, right? whether it's someone at a store, whether it's someone at the work, whether it's someone in your neighborhood, uh, just being forth this light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, is, is being forth this light to spread the word. Just, just spread it. And doing so, as Paul says, makes your feet lovely. Now, if you think about your feet, do you have lovely feet or not? I don't think my feet are particularly lovely. I know Yvonne doesn't think her feet are particularly lovely. Now, there may be some among you who have really lovely feet. <laughs> Wonderful. But you can make your feet lovely. How? By being that, that message, uh, as it says here in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Coming from Isaiah 52, verse 7, which Isaiah imagines the one coming, coming from the mountains and, and walking from far away and coming and, and bringing peace and telling of news of happiness and saying that, that God reigns in the midst of the problems of, of your life. Right? When one comes with good news of relief, that is a, a good thing. It puts a, a smile on your face. It gives joy to your heart. And it makes your feet beautiful. Now, of course, that, that's all illustrative, right? I mean, um, whatever. It just talks about the feet are the things that brought the gospel to you. Right? And so whatever means you get the gospel, whatever, whatever ways. Can you think of people who shared the gospel with you? Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a sister. 
who shared the gospel with you, and you may not have said, can you take off your shoes? I want to see your feet. You may not have said that. But can you not say, what a, what a blessed privilege I am to have been in the path of someone as they came along the way to share the gospel with me. Right? Telling you of your sin and telling you of your need for a Savior and then telling you of Jesus who came to die for your sin. If you just but believe in Him, all your sin can be wiped away and you can stand and be right before God. Do you remember someone who told that to you? Maybe names and imageries coming across your face. The, the idea here, this Isaiah 52 passage of, uh, of being um, these feet, how blessed they are of, of those who preach the good news is that it just, just brings joy to our heart when we hear the gospel. When we think about those who brought the gospel to us. And you know what? You can bring that same joy to other people. Like one of the, the most, um, I say, the most rewarding people that I get to talk to or speak with are those who have zero clue of the gospel. I mean, it's, it's one thing, yes, to talk to people who've got a grasp of it or Christian. And I, I love talking to you all. I love just pouring the gospel into your lives. I mean, I love that. But when someone comes along who knows absolutely zero and you begin to tell them and their eyes begin to open up, I'll tell you, that's the most invigorating because you're really reaching to the ends of the earth. You really, it's, it is those who have never heard that you get the chance to be the first to tell. And that happens sometimes every now and then. And when people are particularly receptive, it gives a joy to your heart. So reflect upon that. Reflect upon you yourself can be a joy to other people. But it all, all stems, right, from enjoying the grace of God to extend the glory of God, right? Come and really basking in the glory of Christ so that you send that out. Um, in, in Psalm 96, we talked about in our, our prayer meeting, the first three verses were today about speaking and telling but you need to have something in telling about. It says in verse 4, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. The message of the Old Testament just saying, which is just the greatness of God. And in our message today is just the, the grace of God and how gracious He has been in Jesus. And so we have a good opportunity to reflect upon that and think upon that in the Lord's Supper. That's what we've done every week. Just, just climaxing, hopefully, next Sunday. With Easter Sunday, so we think Jesus is no longer on the cross, he's no longer in the, the tomb, but he is, is lifted high. As we think about his death and burial, if we think about him dying on the cross for our sins, what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I want you you bow your heads and just want to take some time here to, to prepare our hearts just to, to celebrate the supper in a, in a worthy manner. Paul calls us before we eat and before we drink, to do so in a, in a worthy way. I think that simply means of just opening our hands to Him and, and calling on the Lord and realizing that we have nothing of ourselves, but it's, but it's all of Him. So I encourage you just to, to look at your life and just say, am I, am I trusting the Lord in all things? If you do, you will never be put to shame. You will never be put to shame. Because the Lord will be on your side, and when God is for us, who can be against us? So if there's sin you're harboring or keeping, just confess that to the Lord. Just plead the Lord for, for strength. And if you're lacking, if you're lacking in talking to others about Christ and the gospel, it's probably because you yourself are not reflecting on that enough. Just even ask the Lord now. As we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, God, just 
Help me again to see you fresh, high lifted up, beaten, crucified for my sin. And realize that sin is nailed to the cross. And you don't bear it any longer. It doesn't need to be this albatross around your neck, but can be something taken off. And that comes by calling on the name of the Lord. It's, it's for everyone. And this, this supper we have, this meal we have, is for everyone who's believing and trusting in Christ. But if you're not believing this morning, just let the elements pass. It's okay. But if you're believing and trusting, then, then take them and, and join with us as we think, reflect upon the, the death of Christ. And Jesus even said, do this in remembrance of me. God, we're, we're doing this, O Lord, in remembrance of you. Touch our hearts afresh again today in Jesus' name. Amen.